This is the EWN Podcast Network. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Judge John Riley, who... Uh, has quite a story and a place in Canadian history and does amazing work. John, welcome uh, to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So I'm going to read a quote by Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs in 1910. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating so closely in the residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of the department, which is geared towards a final solution of our Indian problem. So that is the subject of today's podcast. Why don't you give a bit of your background? So you're the youngest sitting judge in Alberta, correct? I was uh, the youngest person appointed to be a provincial court judge in Alberta. I think that's probably a, uh, a record that won't be changed because uh, they won't make that mistake again. (laughs) Because you were 30 at the time. Yeah, I was 30 when I received my appointment. And And at that time, you had a notion about, did you even have a notion about, when did you become aware that our Indigenous population was being treated very unfairly? Not until I'd been sitting for 20 years and I was 50 years old. But the thing that I think really drove it home to me was I I sat for the first 20 years of my appointment in the city of Calgary. And, but for five of those years from 81 to 86, I was the, I was assigned to the circuit that included Cochrane and Cochrane is where all of the cases from the Stony Indian reserve are heard. So for five years, I was basically the assigned judge for the Stony Indian Reserve, and I knew nothing about them. And that was pretty much the wisdom of the day. Uh, Judges weren't supposed to know anything about accused people appearing in front of them. So being totally ignorant of the circumstances of the uh, Aboriginal people was okay. Then from in 1993, I was... Uh, transferred to Canmore to become the resident judge there, and Cochrane was added to the Canmore circuit. So I was again the circuit judge for the reserve. Only things had changed from the 80s to the 90s. In Alberta, we had the task force on the criminal justice system and its effect on the Indian and Métis people of Alberta. And that was still what we were calling Indigenous people. What did that look like in the beginning? You know, they would come into court and it was like just, you know, one and done, you know, you would sentence them. Oh, absolutely. It was in the, when I, uh, when I was there in those first five years or those five years in the 80s, it was great to see the the room full of Indians because uh, predictably they would, plead guilty, has nothing to say, and and I could deal with all the cases on the docket before lunch. When I was reassigned there in the mid-90s, 
it was a different perspective for me because now I was the resident judge and I had more of an administrative responsibility for my caseloads. And I started counting the number of cases that involved Native people. And it was, I think we guessed that at about 80% of the, of the court docket was made up of people from the reserve and the reserve only made up about 10% of the total population that were serviced by that court. So they were overrepresented by about eight times what they should have been. And uh, so I began to take an interest in that. And, and I read that report of the task force. It's usually referred to as the Causey report, but the actual document is called Justice on Trial. And the task force visited hundreds of Native communities and they made a couple of conclusions. They came to a couple of conclusions that uh, I felt really related to me. And one of them was that judges who don't know anything about the communities in which they sit are often seen as judicial tyrants. And the other one was that when you treat people who are not the same as if they are the same, that is systemic discrimination. So that was around the mid nineties and, and I was appointed in, well, the 77s. So it might not have been quite 20 years, but the other thing, we had the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that released its report. It was uh, seven volumes. They call it five volumes, but it was seven big books. And I read the whole thing. And that was when I learned about residential schools and treaties and, and the dispossession of the native peoples. And it was when I learned about this concept of the intergenerational dysfunction. And then in 1996, the criminal code was amended to include a number of uh, sections which instructed judges on what they were to consider in, in arriving at sentences. And the last paragraph was 718.2 sub e, which said that all sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances shall be considered for all accused with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal accused. And that's the point where it changed for you, isn't it? Because oh, it, it, it made a huge change for me because I wanted to learn then what that would be. And, and I, wanted, I wanted to write a judgment that would interpret that section. So I wanted to give my interpretation of it, which was that we've got to just, uh, in, in considering the circumstances, we've got to consider the historical circumstances. And I, I wrote a long judgment in, in one case in which I set all this stuff out and the Court of Appeal in, in finding me to be in error just said that I overemphasized the Aboriginal aspect of, of the case and, and uh, that it was, you know, it was the case in which the man beat his wife. It was a case that I would have automatically just sentenced him to 18 months imprisonment in the 80s. I wouldn't have spent more than, than two or three minutes on that case. The facts would get read in. I probably wouldn't ask the Crown to, 
to make any submissions. I would just ask if they wanted the usual 18 months. But in this case, I said, I, I think that uh, there were a couple of things. His victim spoke and she said that he was a good man when he wasn't drinking and that he needed treatment. And his lawyer said that he had actually been in a, an anger management program and he had been unable to complete it because his funding had been cut off from the tribal government. That was a red flag for me because I had talked to the chiefs about coming up with some programs to help the disproportionate number of their people who were coming into my courtroom. And they just said, well, we don't have any funding. And then I had talked to someone who had been fired by the current tribal administration. And she told me that the uh, reserve had an income of over $100 million a year for 3,000 people. So I, I said, well, I think the circumstances, this man's circumstances include the political corruption and financial mismanagement of the reserve. And I ordered a report on that. Did that in your in your reading to the about the like you put that in a court document? Yes, and and I talk about that in bad medicine. I ordered that investigation, and 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 that created a a media firestorm that got me publicity across the country, and of course that was upsetting to my chief judge because judges are supposed to be. They're just supposed to quietly do their work without gaining a lot of publicity. So, so you referred to Bad Medicine. That's your first book that you've written. You've written three to date, Bad Medicine, Bad Judgment, and Bad Law. So when you published your first... Uh, okay, so let's go back to when the chief, the chief Justice said, I don't think so. So what happened in that point forward? Well, he ordered me moved from my jurisdiction. Uh, he told me that I, he, he put in a letter that I had lost my, my uh, objectivity in dealing with Aboriginal accused. And he ordered me to move back to Calgary and sit in the uh, Calgary courts. So uh, in, in essence, he's saying that this particular gentleman who had an issue with um, alcohol abuse who was a good man, and the victim even stated that, that just didn't matter to, to them. No. The, uh, I was to apply the law, and the Alberta Court of Appeal in one of its judgments said that those sections had codified but not changed the law. And uh, as far as the, uh, most of the Alberta courts were concerned, it was just business as usual. And uh, so that was sort of the beginning of my change of thinking about the law generally, that its, its emphasis on punishment was just wrong. And that I began to see that not just the Indigenous accused who were coming before me were victims of circumstances that contributed to their crimes, but so were a lot of the other people. Mm -hmm. And that... Um, were the other people sentenced differently? Well... Because if you're talking about going by the letter of the law, anyone that walked in that courtroom who was abusive uh, to their partner, their spouse, or whatever, 
they automatically get 18 months. Was it same for right across the board? And I mean, for white people? Just trying to think of specific examples that, that might show that. But pretty much, that was, the thing was that we had a system that we used with white people and we applied it to the native people. And what Causey said in his uh, report, Justice on Trial, was that doing that is systemic discrimination. And so I made an effort to deal with the indigenous people who were coming before me in a more culturally sensitive way. And uh, basically, we, their culture was that treatment should take precedence. As a matter of fact, their culture didn't even seem to include punishment. Uh, one of the cases that I talk about in bad law is Crow Dog versus Spotted Tail. And uh, Crow Dog killed Spotted Tail. The tribal government ordered Crow Dog to make compensation to Spotted Tail's family in the in blankets and ponies and, and money. And uh, the territorial government, after that had happened, charged Crow Dog with murder and sentenced him to be hanged. And he appealed that conviction on the basis of a law that they had in the United States that said that if a uh, an offender has been tried and dealt with by the the tribal authorities, then he cannot be tried again in the territorial court. And so at some point, did that ever change? Like, why, if they have their tribal, sorry if I sound dumb, because I really don't understand, but do they still have that tribal government and it does not supersede our own, correct? Uh, no, they, they don't, because in... Uh, because the United States then passed what they called the Major Crimes Act, and it said that it doesn't matter who the accused is or where the offense is committed, the territorial courts had the jurisdiction. And that, and, and that affected Canada as well then, obviously. Well, no, it didn't affect Canada. I just used that as an, as a, as an example. And, and they, were, they were Sioux natives, the crow dog and spotted tail and the people with whom i have had the most contact in my jurisdiction were the stony nakoda and that is uh, they are uh, sioux speaking uh, people so this yeah. is uh, part of their it, it seems i've asked a number of elders if there's a word for forgiveness in their language and they couldn't think of one and if you're, you don't have to f forgive someone unless you find fault and condemn them. And then it's, it's, it's forgiving the fault. Whereas they didn't seem to look at it that way. They seem to look at wrongdoing as something that had causes that needed to be dealt with. Yeah. And punishing was not part of their culture. I think that's true. And I mean, when you talk about um, they have the healing circles, I mean, it doesn't I mean, it doesn't always have to go to the case of murder. But in anything is what is the punishment weighing the crime? Right. And I don't ever want to take away from uh, domestic abuse. 
for sure. But when you're talking about two, you're essentially saying that there's the tribal government and then there's our own government and they're mixing, right? They're mixing in, correct? Is that where you're finding the, the like, I'm, I'm not clear on um, well, where... Well, Canada was much different. I See, I don't think that the Native people in Canada ever intended to turn everything over to the Canadian government. But that's just sort of the way it happened. The, uh, the Americans, I think, were, were better in their dealings with the Native people in some ways. Like, we, we know there were a lot of uh, armed conflicts in which huge numbers of, of Native people were killed. But uh, when they were settled on reserves, they were actually allowed to to deal with wrongdoing on the reserve in their own customs. In Canada, that seems to have just gone by the board. The, um, as the, the white settlement came in and the white population became more powerful, the Canadian government, which at one point had been allies with First Nations, now just assumed control over them. They treated them like wards of the state. And, and uh, Indeed. And one of the things that I hear a lot, I mean, we all talk about this and we're all trying, I think now in 2021, we're trying to make sense of it because we want, we want them to be okay. We want us to be okay. You can't change the history. You can only go moving forward. One of the things that I don't know if I'm wrong and I'm off base here, John, but one of the things we should not have done is put them on reserves. Do you think so? Or am I wrong? You know what I mean? Like, um, there isn't too simple to say, you know, there's, uh, could they have integrated? And I know exactly what you're going to say when I ask this question and that's okay, but could they have integrated? Would it have been better that they could have still honored their culture, but, you mean the world changed, the country changed. Did we do them a disservice by putting them on reserves? I think we did them a disservice by putting them on such small reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're talking about two entities, you're talking about their way of life, um, which actually is quite fascinating if you ever take the time to learn, or I'm going to do quotations, our way of life. And they are kind of, they have crossed over in that, you know, they don't hunt and gather and they don't live in teepees. Like, you know, the ridiculous stereotype of a native. Um, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, how do we now get it so it's not two separate entities, but they haven't been um, swallowed up by our ways? Because who says ours are better, really, to be honest? Well, I think there are a lot of ways in which the the native people have a that their ways are better than ours. Um, you know, when you look at the, the original contacts between the uh, Europeans who came here and the, the native people who greeted them, the native people were generous. They, they helped them. They, they, when Champlain lost half his people at Ile Saint-Croix, the Mi'kmaq came in the spring and, and showed them what herbs to use to cure the scurvy. And, and save the other half of the people. When the American settlers landed at Plymouth Rock, the, the natives there came and taught them how to grow corn. And, and uh, when Columbus landed 
in somewhere in the Bahamas, the, uh, the Arawak people came out with food and greeted them. And then Columbus comes back five years later with, I forget, 100 ships and 1,200 men and takes the whole nation prisoner. And, and their way was, was generous and his was feeding the greed of people that wanted them to find gold. Yeah, and, and to that point, so the other thing that I hear quite often, and I think it comes from, I don't know if it comes from a place of frustration, but we're not 100 years ago. And I think that's what I hear, I'm sure, I know you've heard it, is people saying, but that was so long ago, aren't we better than that now? And people trying to help them, but you used to, when we were doing our pre-podcast meeting, you talked about assimilation. Essentially, we're doing the same thing we did 100 years ago. You're taking them and you're making them see the the way it we think it is now. You know what I mean? Like the way, is it different? You know what I'm trying to say? Uh, no. Oh, here's my question. Is 100 years ago, we kind of just came in and when you're talking about Champlain and they, they gathered them all, or Columbus, and you gathered them all together and you essentially made them prisoners. Are we not doing the same thing to them now with on the reserves? We're, we're saying, yes, you, yes, we want to honor your culture, but boy, you better not step out of line in the white world. That's the kind of, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people are like, it's not the same now as it was a hundred years ago. It's different now. Or is it different is, is really what I'm asking. Well, I think that what's the same is that they are still distinct people. Mm-hmm. And we still don't want them to be distinct people. And as far as putting them on reserves is concerned, what we did was, I mean, the land was theirs. They had, t- what, what is the expression they used? The, they occupied the land and we didn't give them anything. We took away 99% of what they had. Or I think the actual number is, is 97.5% that what the white immigrant population did was it took away all except 2.5% of, of the landmass and then restricted uh, the native people from leaving the reserves. And basically, you know, the, the worst thing was the destruction of the buffalo, which was basically took away their prime source of food and, and shelter. So the, um, they were reduced to poverty by the greed of the, of the, uh, of the newcomers. Mm-hmm. And, and then in the mid-1800s, see, it's not 100 years. It's, it's more like 200 years. The, the destruction was, was beginning in the early 1800s. And uh, by 1877, when, when, the, uh, when Treaty 7 was signed, the people that signed that treaty were, were all, had already been reduced to poverty and great problems with alcohol because of the whiskey traders. Crowfoot welcomed the, the treaty because uh, he expected the RCMP to, to get rid of the whiskey traders, which they did to a large extent. But then his friendship with the RCMP deteriorated significantly when they started enforcing all of the rules that the Canadian government was putting on them. Like you can't leave the reserve, you can't wear your native clothes, you can't 
And then they took all the children. That started in about the 1850s, before Confederation. And I think, you know, it's just interesting to talk about the history. I think, obviously, we need to talk about the history. And because I think that's what confuses people today, is they don't know enough about the history. And I mean, now there's, I mean, there's dozens of books out about the um, the history, like the 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, fabulous book. The Inconvenient Indian, uh, fabulous book as well, and yours. And so the thing is, is we are, here we are, John, it's just striking me as we're talking. We're two white people talking about the Native plight. What is your relationship? I know you have a very dear friendship with Tina Fox from the Stony Nakoda. What is her perspective on this? Well, she works very hard to uh, to preserve the culture and preserve the language. Her, probably her uh, main thrust is that the in order to preserve the culture, you have to preserve the language. And her, her oldest son, Trent, is uh, working on a PhD in, in Native Studies, and he's, he's teaching a course in, in Stony Nakoda at the, uh, at the University of Calgary. Uh, her daughter, Kim, was a, a Stony language teacher at the, uh, at the school at Morley uh, until she died a number of years ago. So uh, I think she finds the preservation of language one of the most important things. And, and it's, it's identity. You know, people, they, they, they were not allowed to be themselves. That was... That rang true for me. I was, my father, I think, was third generation Irish, but I grew up with all the stories of the problems in Ireland and the the sort of the war cry of the Irish was Sinn Féin, which means we ourselves. And that's what the natives were not allowed to be. So then when you get down to my main interest, which is justice, I came to see that the reason these people were so overrepresented in the in the justice system was because of the dysfunction in their communities, the dysfunction in their families. That was the result of this history of being told that being an Indian was not good. Yeah. They weren't allowed to speak their language. They weren't allowed to use their native dress. And one of the things that really came home to me was they weren't allowed to partake in their spiritual practices. I mean, we was drilled into even, us. Even within the reserve, they weren't allowed to? No. Really? No, they could be round dances, potlatches were, were prohibited. And one of the things about the round dances and potlatches was that was the way they sustained themselves materially as well in the, They'd have uh, dances, a round dance in the spring, and people who had food and material left over after the winter would share that with people who had run out. Yeah. You know, when, when I'm hearing about these stories, and we need to hear these stories, we really simply do, and we need to hear them in the school system. It's shameful that we don't know, John. I mean, we grew up listening to Cowboys and Indians, those movies and hearing, and, you know, and it was a, it was kind of them versus us. And 
you know, when you don't know, you don't know. And it's, it's, an, it's shameful that, and disturbing, quite frankly, that we are still largely quite ignorant of what, what really went on. And I think that's really, we need, that's where the white person needs to come in and go, hey, guys, listen, what's going on here? Right? I think it is changing. I, I oh, I think it is too. Yeah, I for sure. Young people who say, yeah, we learn, you know, we've learned about this in school and I learned nothing about native people in school except that they were pretty much extinct and that was the government policy they were going to be I don't think they anticipated that these people would survive they, and, and indeed they did you know the, the the nations here now that are numbering in the thousands were down to uh, the hundreds yeah. at the beginning of the uh, 20th century my gosh so you got into some hot water with with the chief, did you not? When you saw, let's go back to your story. So the chief counsel is saying, no, 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 and they're going to unseat you and move you back to Calgary. And did you fight it? I um, uh, was fortunate that uh, Alan Hunter, who was one of Canada's best lawyers, uh, was also interested in Indigenous rights. And uh, we challenged the order and we were ultimately successful but um, and I, I stayed in Canmore throughout and continued to go to the res, uh, to Cochrane and hear the cases from the reserve. Did you change the way you were sentencing them? Because now you've had a whole different view even though you're supposed to be a you know take a number here you go 18 months click 18 months click did you change your sentencing? And could oh, yeah. you change it? Yeah, I did. I, and, and I changed my, where I was able, I used community justice circles to, to determine what a proper disposition would be in a given case. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that as much as I would like because it was difficult to get the cooperation of the, of the community itself. People didn't want to be involved and they would tell me they didn't want to be involved because they were afraid of repercussions. And, and I thought that meant, well, if they supported a sentence that was, uh, that offended the offender or his family, that there might be violence, you know, that they were the repercussions they were thinking of might be violence from people who were the subject of those circles. But Kind of as I as I got to know them better, and as I think as people were more willing to uh, share their beliefs with me, there was a tremendous amount of uh, spiritualism involved. That they believed that people doing wrong do wrong because of the influence of of evil spirits. And if they get involved in that process, they might invi invite those spirits mm. to come against them. Yeah. So I think there was a real element of spiritual fear. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't fault them for that because I don't... Here's the thing is, how in heck are they going to just turn around and just turn over their power, what little they may have, to white people um, when there's just clearly hasn't been shown such a lack of disrespect and societal ideas and all of that. 
Of course they're going to be nervous to do that. So the more I came to see that, the more I came to see that our system is just wrong. We don't, we don't even care about causes. We don't care about uh, fixing problems. Or uh, it's only been since the mid-90s that we had victim impact statements and a victim was allowed to testify or to uh, victims were always required to testify. But the whole focus was on the offense that the accused had been, had been charged with and uh, whether or not that was proven. Fixing damage didn't have anything to do with it. And, and so I began to see, you know, that the whole criminal justice system that we have in Canada is based on the concept of deterrence. If you punish wrongdoers for doing wrong, they'll stop doing it because they won't want more punishment. And others who see them getting punished won't do the wrongs because they don't want to experience those same punishments. And that's ridiculous because if that were true, we wouldn't have, you know, people doing things over and over and over. Yeah, for sure. And I saw that one of the things about being the circuit judge for the reserve is that I, I was seeing the repeat offenders. And one of the most sad uh, things I saw was a man who had been in front of me several times as an accused offenses of violence and alcohol related violence was there with his son committing who had been charged with a similar kind of offense, you know, and it was like the universe was telling me this system of yours isn't working judge. And, and I, that so came home to me that uh, uh, I could probably still be sitting as a judge. And uh, I quit 10 years ago because I just didn't want to have anything more to do with it. I, I mostly, uh, I resigned and ran as a liberal candidate in Wild Rose, which had no hope of getting elected, but I just wanted to be able to speak out against the justice reforms that the Harper government wanted, which included a lot of minimum sentences. And I think minimum sentences are one of the worst parts of our code because it's the judges that should be deciding who should go to jail and who shouldn't. But the politicians want to have a hand in it and they want they they it's it's politically popular to talk about being tough on crime, sentencing people to lengthy periods of imprisonment, and that costs billions of dollars a year that uh, could be far better spent on the social programs and help that would eliminate the need for the prisons. Have you gotten any fight back or kickback from any of your peers as judges, other judges? And they're like, John, what are you doing? Um, can't change the system. You know, I will say it does take people like you to stand up and go, listen, this is not working. Whether you're going to see the massive change that I know you want to see in your lifetime is not the point, John. The point is, is that you stood up and said, this is not working we need to look. So if you've gotten any friends, peers that have said, holy, what are you doing? Just be, you know, well, do your term and retire and enjoy your life. When I was, uh, I don't see many judges. I, I, 
I did become kind of a uh, the odd man out. I was fighting with the chief judge, and and uh, a lot of my fellow judges didn't want to get into a situation where they were at odds with the administration. So there were there were a number of people who quietly told me that they were proud of what I was doing, but they wouldn't say that publicly. And I became I became a little. Um, maybe quite a bit bitter about the fact that I had no support for something that I believed in. But then a lot of my fellow judges didn't believe in it. One of the uh, the biggest impediment to affecting change is those who benefit from the status quo. Judges are well paid and... and uh, well, one of the biggest impediments to change is to do nothing. We're going to uh, take a break. We will be right back. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Judge John Riley. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million-dollar dream hanging around minimum-wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So, here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. We are back. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Judge John Riley. So, John, we're going to go just a bit forward. You know, I mean, obviously, um, we, we... You'd have to have 10 podcasts to talk about everything that is close to your heart. I know this because I know you. So you've written three books. Uh, You're working on your fourth. And you're speaking. Are you speaking a lot to people? Who's hiring Judge John Riley to speak about this problem? Are the natives hiring you or the Indians, the First Nations? Yes. uh, More so. The people I really want to talk to are are the newcomers, the the, newcomers. the non-Indigenous people. And, and I think I uh, perform a, a valuable function there because it's if a Native person gets up and tells a group of non-Natives or non-Indigenous the history of what jerks they are, people can react badly to that. But when one of our own tells us that we've been real jerks, there's maybe just a bit more willingness to listen to that. Yeah, and that's to my point earlier when I said, here we are, two white people talking about it. But we need to talk about it. But we also need to have a group of mixed who get what needs to be, what needs to happen. And I, I think that we can, we recognize that it is starting to happen for sure. Uh, I mean, it takes, it took generations to get us to this point. It's going to take us a little bit longer to get us out of this where we are respectful of these people and vice versa, right? If they've got the same, you know, a lot of distrust of white and, and that's fair. What 
uh, you're gonna be 75 on your next birthday. Yeah. What would 75 year old John, retired judge, tell 30 year old Judge John Riley, new to the bench? I would tell him to to look for the good in people, and to realize that the people that appear before him charged with offenses are not necessarily bad people. They're people who have made mistakes. Uh, most of them are people who suffer from addictions and uh, that, that helping them is far more important than punishing them. So I would encourage uh, the young judge to be treatment oriented from, from the beginning. The, um, First half of my career, I, I believed uh, wholeheartedly in the concept of deterrence. I'd send people to jail for as long as I could justify, and I thought I was doing a good thing. And uh, one of the things that impressed me was Rupert Ross quotes a, a O.G. Cree justice proposal in which they say that one of the main differences between white justice and native uh, perception of wrongdoing is that the white people seem to think that a wrongdoing means that a person is a bad person and needs to be punished, whereas the indigenous people see wrongdoing as ignorance in need of teaching or illness in need of healing. And uh, that completely changed my perspective on what I was doing because it started to become so clear to me the, the illness and the ignorance that were, was bringing people into, into my courtroom. And uh, Well, let's face it, John, even the white people that go into the courtroom when they're dealing with alcohol abuse and all of those things, we're not helping them by sticking them in a jail. They need no. help. They need addiction counseling. They need anger management. They need to get to the place where they figure out why they're making the choices they're making. And you're absolutely right. They're not bad people. They're just misguided, maybe. And uh, the majority of crimes, at least crimes of violence that I dealt with, were alcohol-related. And probably close to all of the people who drink too much drink in order to self-medicate depression. Absolutely. Putting them in jail just increases the depression. Mm -hmm. So we actually make it probably more likely that people will reoffend by putting them in jail than we would. You know, I don't see that they don't say that they don't have to be monitored and controlled, but they can be controlled in a lot less expensive way than in prisons where you have to have 24-hour guards. And, and there's and a whole that. other story of trying to survive. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So I'm going to wave a magic wand. And John Riley has started this thing. And he has started the march forward to find equality uh, and respect for each other's differences in, in the culture. So I'm going to wave that magic wand. What would it look like, John? if we could fix this in, in a magic wand. And it's going to get fixed. I fully believe that because it's people like you uh, in all of these, you know, uh, dozens of books that are being written about this and, and bringing for, I didn't even know about residential schools till like five years ago. I didn't got it. I didn't have a clue. And I used to be one of those people that used to say, 
you know what? Jeez, they need to get over it. And it's shameful how we used to think. And so in a perfect world, what's it look like, John? In a perfect world, instead of uh, charging people with breaking the law when there's a problem, we would send them to a, a justice coordinator who would organize community justice forums. He would say, here's the complaint. How can we deal with it? And if it can be dealt with, it, the community justice forum involves the offender and the person who has been affected by the offense and their close associates. So we would have like family group conferencing. We would have the offending youth and his family. We'd have the the victim and, and the victim would include anybody who was upset by what, what happened. And you'd put all these people in a, uh, in a circle and you would say, okay, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to fix the problem? And uh, they would talk about their feelings. The, the offender would be asked to talk about what he was thinking at the time, how he felt at the time. And then he'd listen to everybody else talking about how they thought about it and felt about it. And then we'd have a second one in which we'd ask them how they feel about it now. And it would be amazing in those circumstances, how in those circles, rather, how people would change their feelings. And then the last thing, the last round would be, okay, what do we do about it? What, how do we make this up? And uh, the only people who would be subject to the current mainstream criminal system would be those who refused to participate and those who would be so dangerous that their incarceration would be necessary to protect people from them. Right. We're talking about murderers who suffer from, I don't know, I mean, whatever it is that, you know, mental illness and all of those things, because, I mean, that that sounds pretty utopian, if you ask me. And I mean, I'm not doubting what you're saying. I just, I can't envision that most people don't even take responsibility for their behavior in when they're not breaking the law and how the heck are they going to do it when they don't, you know what I mean? One of the people that I was always unbelievably in awe of, if it, if that's a word to describe is, is Reverend Dale Lang, whose son was uh, murdered and his amazing story of forgiveness. I think you talk about that in bad law. You do in one of your books, I think it is in bad law. Yes. where he, you quote him is the problem will be if you can't make that place of forgiveness and you're going to get stuck in the place of anger and bitterness. That's an incredible thing to say. And not many people would take that stance. I think that they're in their own pain and, and it's not a bad thing either way, I guess. But I guess that's what my point was about. Is it too utopian to think we could sit in a circle and I mean my gosh if it were that easy we would have done it already do you know well we haven't done it already because this system that we have basically inherited from the English was a system in which all offenses were offenses against the king's peace mm. and so it was uh, how serious is the breach? And we're going to uh, impose a punishment that is going to equal the breach. 
And, you know, I hear people like a fatal accident, half a dozen people are killed and the accused get sentenced to three years and they say, boy, three years for six lives. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. There is no correlation between the penalty and the harm that's done or, or the injuries yeah. that have suffered. The, the correlation is between the, what the accused has done and how badly that affects the king's peace. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, the, the system, there's, there's, I was tremendously impressed. One of the groups that asked me to speak was the Alberta Restorative Justice Association. They had a hundred different organizations that were, I'm guessing at that number. As a matter of fact, I've just asked them if they will uh, provide me with a register of the people that attended the conference that I spoke at so that I could talk about it. But the use of restorative justice is happening. It's happening in prisons and schools. And, and I think that the more people become uh, familiar with it and see it being used, the more it will be used in, in criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and again, it goes back to that we're not going to see that change in our lifetime. I mean, maybe we will. Wouldn't that be lovely if we could? I mean, so it's not all for naught, right? But yeah, I think it's going to take a long time to change an entire mindset of a society, for sure. It was the Gomeshi case that uh, I referred to um, the uh, popular radio broadcaster charged with sexually abusing a number of women. Mm-hmm. And we went through our trial process and he was found not guilty because the, uh, he had an extremely good lawyer who could probably make Santa Claus look like a break and enter person. <laughs> uh, but in my utopian world, instead of going to the police and having charges laid, they would go to the community justice coordinator who and tell him what their problem was. And he would go to Gomeshi and say, you know, I've got a complaint here that you should answer. There would be extreme penalties for him not answering. So he can either come in or he can be locked up for 30 days and then come in or another 30 days until he finally, you know, mm-hmm. there are, there certainly are cases in which you have to use Um, coercion in order to make things happen. But the final result would be he would be in a, in a, a facilitated conversation with these women that have complaints against him. And he'd talk about his feelings and what he was thinking at the time. And they would all talk about the same. And the guy isn't stupid. And uh, he's probably not evil. He just, he he's has, definitely, he's definitely got something wrong with him. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. But he might see that. He might actually come to an understanding of what the complaints were. That and, or he could get some serious uh, counseling, you know, therapy for sure. Well, well might, he, he didn't go to jail, did he? No, he was no. found not guilty. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and so, so there, that brings the point that is like, 
yeah, just because he's found not guilty doesn't mean he's not guilty. And I mean, I think that's what rubs against society a lot too, is it just doesn't even make sense, right? Well, that's right. And the other thing, that the other problem is there could be a thousand or several thousand women across Canada who have been sexually abused by employers and fellow employees. Yeah. And they won't come forward because they see how those women were vilified. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, you know, I say, I, I say our current Canadian criminal justice system does more harm than good. So, uh, so you've gone from, you know, um, seeing that there was a problem with the uh, indigenous, how they are treated and is your first book, book more about challenging the criminal justice system, which has nothing to do with the First Nations issues? Because oh. you can't, you know, we've gone over to that bit where you're giving examples. So now we're going into what's going on and what's wrong with our own society. Um, how the heck can we be telling someone else how to do it? We can't even get it right ourselves. I mean, I think one of the uh, most disgusting cases in Canada is Carla Homolka and how she got free and how she was freed because she she turned against him and wasn't a witness. I don't understand how all of it works, but I'll tell you, it rubs a lot of people in the wrong way. And it is. It's disgusting that that you, happened. You have that white man's need for punishment. You're angry. You you you, you want vengeance. You, you you don't want to see her be okay. And I think, you know, and, and, and I, I'll be vilified for saying anything in her favor, but. Not on my show, you won't, because you're, you are, you, we're about to have a difference of an opinion for sure. And you'll censor it out. <laughs> no, I actually won't, because I like that you said that, because you were absolutely right. I think that woman should be in prison, no different than Paul Bernardo. See, yeah. that's your white man's need for vengeance and, and, and venting your anger. And I'm thinking she's married. She has a couple of children. She's, she's the hockey mom. Hey, that is a huge success story. That's what we would like to do with every, yeah. we'd like to do that with, with, with Paul Bernardo too. Well, he'll never be out. I mean, he can't be a success story. Clearly she's done it, but he can't be a success story. You can't even imagine it. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I mean, I, I definitely won't cut this out of the podcast because I think it's a really good point for people to think about, John. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, the thing is that my utopian view is that imprisonment is only used to restrain people who cannot otherwise be controlled. And Paul Bernardo may fit that, that category. Yeah. But uh, Ruth Morris, who's uh, one of my my favorite people, I don't even know that she's still alive or not, but she has, uh, she has tried, to, she would ban prisons altogether. Yeah. And what was her, what did she write again? She had written, did she write a number of books? I know you've talked what, about her. What to do with the dangerous few? It's not, it's just a pamphlet that I have of hers. But she claims that only two and a half percent of the people who we have in our federal prison system constitute a danger. Mm -hmm. I sentenced lots of people to prison that 
I know had did not constitute a danger. And one of the, uh, you know, again, getting into these really dangerous situations uh, or propositions that people will vilify me for, the Ryan situation, a young lad that died because of his parents just didn't properly care oh, for Oh, yes, yeah, just recently. Uh, no, the one that I write about is is uh, John Ryan Turner, whose parents, he was, he, I guess, when he cried, his parents would tie him up and gag him, and he, he died at three and a half years of age. My and gosh. And were convicted of murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison, to life imprisonment, minimum 25 years without parole but john that's where you go it goes against the grain of hearing that is is what the heck you can't like i'm gonna challenge you is like i'm not it's not about being right or wrong but i'm gonna challenge you if someone gags a three-year-old because he's crying there's seriously not a healing circle is going to like change that mindset what heck were they thinking well, they had another child that was normal. They, they just, um, the, the doctors testified that she suffered from postpartum depression and failed to mm. bond with the child. Yeah. And well, there's those were, cases too where it happens where, you know, there was the, I can't remember the case, but the lady who drowned her two children in Invermere and she was in, from Calgary and she actually did not get sent to jail. She did uh, was deemed uh, mentally incapacitated at the time, and so she didn't go to jail. It's like the young, the guy that um, who suffered from schizophrenia who cut the dude's head off on the Greyhound bus. Like that just goes. I think when we're when you're talking about how I want to punish, I don't know if I want to punish. I just don't want these people around, like for the possibility, right? Well, and. And I think that instead of uh, saying, you know, this offense is this bad, so the penalty is this many years in jail, that we should be looking at what has to be done in order to prevent this from happening again. Mm-hmm. Now, you have the, the, the current, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has just ordered a new trial in the case of David and Colette Stefan, who who didn't believe in traditional medicine. So they yeah. tried alternative methods with their child and he died. Mm-hmm. Well, what good does sending them to jail do? You know, making them take a hundred hours or a thousand hours of, of instruction in, in uh, standard in mainstream medicine, maybe they're right. You know, maybe that what they were doing yeah. might have worked for somebody. They did not set out to kill their child. They believed in an alternate system of medicine that just didn't work, and the boy died. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and this is, but, you know, the, the whole thing is about not understanding, is about being aware and how we can change it. I mean, I think your middle name might be um, controversy. I mean, <laughs> but no that's question. okay, though. That's okay, John, because those are the, you are the people that make those uprisings <laughs> and that's where change has to happen. I don't necessarily agree with everything you said, but then I don't understand and I don't need to agree. 
But, you know, we got another whole court that goes on here, and that's the court of public opinion. And so when you're talking about that, it gets into that mob mentality of, you know, uh, burn them at the stake in the old days. It's no different now. We're just burning them with Facebook and whatever else social media stream there is out there that that's hearing a portion of the facts, right? And aren't, aren't necessarily looking at what can happen to make it better. And so you're that that guy. And I think it, I, I admire you for it. I don't always agree. You know, we have many, many, many conversations, but I admire you for standing up and saying it, John, because if you don't, nothing, if you do nothing, nothing changes. Well, that's, yeah, I like that. I'll write that down. Yeah, write that one down. I can't steal it. I don't know who said it, but I just said it. I just quoted somebody. I can't, I don't know uh, who it was. <laughs> um, I think we could, we could have an entire series about the, uh, the whole topic of, of the justice system, never mind an entire uh, year-long podcast on the struggles of our First Nations, and it does need to get fixed. It really does. Well, it does. And, and, and it's, you know, and it's not taking them all off the reserves and into the big cities and making them just like white men. It's letting them be themselves. Yeah, but uh, you know, and I had the privilege of of um, meeting and visiting with a number of elders who are now gone, and and I wonder if there's a if there's a generation that is replacing them, and and uh, well, that's this that is that is a frightening thought because the generations that are replacing the elders are the ones that maybe want to have the same privileges we have we take for granted and can you blame them well many do and and uh, and that's what i say that 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 indigenous personality which i see as so much more gentle and honest than the newcomer society mm-hmm. is being uh it, it it's being tainted by the the newcomer society, the, the, the greed and, and the, um, well, it's what they were telling everyone what success is. And, you know, that's a whole other topic as well. Right. I mean, yeah. John, thank you for joining me today. We will probably have many more discussions on this, you know, honestly, as, as your friend and, I really do admire the work you do. It takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing because you could have easily just kind of coasted through your 45-year career as a judge and or 35-year career as a judge and just carried on and enjoyed the rest of your life. So um, I do. I thank you for that. It's important work that you're doing. Never forget that. In about, I, I don't know if it gets you down sometimes or if you don't think you're seeing a change, but... I, I do believe you have definitely set the ball in motion, for sure. Well, thank you for saying that, Alan. Nice talking to you, and I'll look forward to, to listening to the edited version of this conversation. <laughs> it's not going to be too edited. I love it. You know what? I don't. I think you're probably my first guest, and it's been like, oh, we really need to have this conversation. I love it. Uh, thanks. You have been listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose, and that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, 
please visit HelenRose.ca. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.